We're in the book of Acts, chapter 22. Acts is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So it's in the latter part of your Bible there. Acts chapter 22. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 21 of Acts chapter 22. Continuing our study through the book of Acts. And um, the title of this message is Jesus Saves. I think you will probably see why uh, that's the title here in a moment as we read through Acts 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning of Acts 22. It says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all you are this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned And beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching of the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. If you are here this morning as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that you have a testimony. It means that you have something that you 
can share with others of how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And sometimes we hear dramatic testimonies of how Jesus saved people. And there are times that perhaps we wish our testimony was perhaps more dramatic. We think, well, if I had a dramatic testimony, you know, one where I was smoking and drinking and a drunkard and, a, and cursed like a sailor all before I was 11 years old, then I would have such a great testimony. It'd be so dramatic. And if I had a dramatic testimony, then I would share it more. But let me be clear with you this morning. If you've been saved by God's grace, then you have a dramatic testimony. Regardless of how you came to Christ, it matters not. What matters is that Jesus saves. And if you know Christ as Savior, you are radically saved from a life of wickedness and evil. You say, well... What if Jesus saved me at an early age? To that I would say even better. Think of what your life could have been. Furthermore, any person that is outwardly good needs Jesus just as much as the vilest sinner. This morning in our text we have Paul sharing his testimony. He's sharing with this mob that had just tried to beat him to death until he was rescued by the Roman soldiers. Paul's testimony is a testimony that Jesus saves. He saved the vilest offender of the day, Paul. Paul was a persecutor of the church and is converted into a, an apostle. Paul then relentlessly preaches the gospel even though he was despised for doing so. There is no other explanation for Paul's conversion other than Jesus saved him. Before we get into the details of Paul's testimony, which is what we're going to do here in a little bit, I first want us to see this from this passage of Scripture. First, Paul's love for the people. Paul's love for the people. The first thing I want us to see is Paul loved the people. I know we covered this a little bit last week, but let's remember that this mob that Paul is addressing had just tried to kill him. They wanted him dead. Now, it would seem like the natural thing would be to allow these soldiers to rescue him and then get out of there. They had saved his life. Why in the world does Paul still want to address the crowd? Very simply, because he loved the Jewish people. We have repeatedly made reference to Romans chapter 9 where Paul says in Romans 9, 1 through 3, he says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is willing to die to see as many people as he could saved. Paul had been saved by grace and he now knew the truth of salvation found in Jesus Christ and he desperately wanted others to know the same salvation. Paul was filled with love for the lost. He cries out, brothers and fathers, hear the defense. And he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Remember this crowd just attacked him and he calls them brothers. 
He was not shouting against them. He did not rebuke them. He did not charge them with a crime. He called them brothers and fathers. Father was used as a title for the fathers of the nation of Israel. Paul is appealing to a relationship. He's calling them family, which in this case, he is speaking to them as part of the Jewish family. He's trying to reach them, and he's showing that he loves them as brothers and as fathers of his people, the Jewish people. So we see that Paul has a deep love for the people. And that should really cause us to check our hearts. It should cause us to ask us how much love do we have for the lost? Are we willing to do like Paul? Are we willing to risk all in order to share the gospel with the lost? Often we're not even willing to strike up a conversation with the lost or to give them the time of day or the resources And yet we see Paul time and time again willing to even risk his life for the lost so that they might hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over and over again we see Paul do this. After we see Paul's love for the lost, we notice that Paul launches into a defense and his testimony. In fact, he says, hear the defense I now give you. Hear the defense I'm giving you as to why I went to the Gentiles in the first place and then he goes on to speak about himself and as Paul is sharing his testimony I want us to notice some things that we can pull out of Paul's testimony that I think that that we need to grasp onto today and to understand The, the first thing in Paul's testimony point number two of the sermon is this religion does not save religion does not save the very first thing that Paul says is that he is a Jew But then he goes on to give a description of his credentials. When it comes to being a Jew, there was no finer Jew than Paul. He tells them that though he was born in Tarsus, he grew up in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he was mentored and toured by this respected and renowned teacher of the name of of, of the law by the name of Rabbi Gamaliel. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the law and he said he followed in the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Now look what he says at the end of verse 3. He makes this statement. He says, being zealous for God. And then he says, after he says that he was zealous for God, he says to them, and as all of you are this day. What did, do you remember what the Jerusalem church said about the Jews, about these Jews, the specific Jews that Paul's addressing. We looked at it last week. Remember, the Jerusalem church said that they were zealous for the law. Paul's letting them know that he had a zeal for the ancient traditions. In fact, he was so zealous that he was led to persecute even to death those people who were followers of the way. Remember, Christians were referred to as followers of the way. Early Christians were called, oh, they're followers of the way. Which is speaking of the entire Christian system, but especially the manner of salvation found by Christ Jesus. Paul went so far as as to go to be thrown into prison, uh, was thrown into prison men and women who were followers of the way. He was heartless. He didn't care if he separated women 
from their children. He was zealous for God. And he tells them he didn't stay in Jerusalem. He traveled to Damascus. Because he was going to round up all the Christians. His goal was to stamp out this movement. These Christians would regret ever following this Jesus. However, God had other plans. And he was struck down with a blinding light from heaven. Look back at verse 3. Notice what Paul says. Again he says, he's zealous for God. But notice the phrase, as all of you are this day. They, like Paul, thought they were defending the Jewish faith. They thought they were defending the temple against the defilement of the Gentiles. They were zealous for God. They were zealous for the law. But all this religious zeal, all this religion that they were expressing and that Paul had expressed could not save them and does not save today. We can't be reconciled to God through religion. Religious practice will not make you right with God. God And in fact, they were zealous for the religion. They, they were so zealous that they killed the Messiah. And not, uh, not in their religious zeal. They, they, they are no in the religious zeal that they were ready to kill the Messiah. The messenger even to this day, which was Paul. And Paul's given a message of the Messiah. And they're ready to kill him. Because he's telling them the way of salvation. We hear people say all the time, especially those that want to argue against God, that religion has led to some of the greatest acts of violence in the world. And they indeed are correct in saying so. Zeal for religion led to the Crusades. Zeal for religion led to the Spanish Inquisition. Zeal for religion led to Muslim wars. And their attempt to conquer North Africa and Europe. Modern day radical Islamic terrorism. Is fed by zeal for religion. The conflict in Northern Ireland. Zeal for religion. All this is due to religious zeal. Don't miss the point. People can have a religious zeal. They can hold to a strict adherence. To their religious principles and beliefs. And be zealous for what they think is God and yet be horribly mistaken in what they're doing. In Paul's case, you can be zealous for God and yet be fighting against God. All the religion in the world will never reconcile a soul to God. And in fact, most people who have such a religious zeal do so to cover up sin in their lives because there's no amount of religion that will ever save anyone. Because religion cannot pay for your sin. Religion does not die on the cross. Only Jesus Christ died on the cross. Religion will not save. But not only do we notice from this testimony that religion does not save, we do notice what does save. God's grace saves. Sometimes we get confused and we somehow conjure up in our minds that salvation is based on merit. Or the fact that we made the right decision when, when, when in reality we are saved by God's grace. Paul makes this pretty clear in his testimony. He speaks of how he was on his way to Damascus to find the followers of the way. He wasn't seeking the Lord. He was not trying to find God's will. He was not reading through the Bible in hopes of finding some answers beyond his 
life. Paul was happy with his life. He was not searching for another way. He was defending the Jewish faith and he was wreaking havoc on Christians. He was trying to rid the earth of these heretics who were followers of Jesus Christ. And as Paul marched forth, God literally stopped him in his tracks. Throwing him to the ground and blinding him. And then he was given orders what to do next. And Paul shares exactly what happened. He says, the Lord said to me, in verse 10, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Church, what part of Paul's conversion did he contribute to? What part of his conversion to Christianity did he give, did, did he make a contribution to? What part did, did, did God say, oh Paul, I need you to do this? Paul's entire conversion came from God. God did not look down and see how great of a man Paul was and said, you know what? That Paul, he qualifies to be saved because he, is, he has some good qualities that I can see in him. So he qualifies to be saved and so I'm going to save him. That's not how it works. Paul, by his own admission, was a blasphemer who persecuted Christians and was filled with arrogance. Look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Paul did not deserve mercy. Paul deserved judgment. But he was shown mercy. Tell me where Paul's will came into play in any of this. Tell me, where do we read that God said to Paul, Paul, I sure would like you to be an apostle, but I'm not going to force it on you. Instead, you need to exercise your free will to choose me. Then you can be my apostle. Where do we read that? Is that what happened? No. Now, some would say, well, God knew that Paul was going to one day follow him. So therefore, God chose Paul. They use this line of thinking with all conversions that they say that God looked down through time and he saw that the person would one day choose to follow him and so he saves them. There's one problem with that. When he says that God saw that man was going to choose him and then God chose man based upon what we are saying, then that still makes God put at the mercy of man. We're saying that election that we read about in Romans chapter 8 and 9 and in Ephesians chapter 1 and all through the scripture is based upon the fallen will of man and that is to ignore what the Bible clearly teaches which is that God first gives the gift of grace to the sinner and without that gift of grace no sinner would ever be saved and we would all die a Christless death. No one would ever choose Christ if God didn't first choose them. Scripture is clear that no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. John chapter 6 verse 44. It says that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father grants them to come to Jesus in the first place. John 6 65. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son who has is, who is, uh, chosen them beforehand or reveals to them or reveals it to them. Luke chapter 10 verse 22. 
We could go on and on and point out that all through Scripture, salvation is by God's grace alone to the sinner. And without the gift of grace, no one would ever, ever be saved. If you are here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not because of anything you did and it's not because of any merit that you have in your life. It's solely because God chose to save you. The first case of salvation, the first cause of salvation is God, not us. I love what Jonathan Edwards says. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And this is what Paul is driving home. In Galatians, Paul says that God set him apart from his birth and called him by grace. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He says in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will. Why did he do this? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Who, who did we get or how did we get the grace? He answers it. Freely he bestowed it on us. It has nothing to do with us. In 2 Timothy, Paul says that God saved us and called us with a holy calling that is not according to our work. If it is not according to our work, what is it according to? Paul answers it. It is according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted or given to us in Christ Jesus when it was given to us through Christ Jesus. Paul answers from all eternity it was given to us. Not from a certain time, from all eternity. It was given. These verses are throughout the Bible, church. It's not some man-made construct. If we deny this, we deny the clear teaching of Scripture. Denial of God's sovereign election only serves to steal away His glory and place it on us. We are saying that we somehow play some part in salvation, that we do something in order to get it. And therefore, we make ourselves more righteous than anyone else. If God's election depends on what he foresaw he would, we would do, then guess what? You have room to boast about your salvation. You know why? Because you made the right choice. And everybody else, well, they make the wrong choice. And that makes you more righteous than they are. Because we used our will and or our mind. And we saw the truth or we somehow mustered up enough faith. However, if our salvation is truly found only in God and has nothing to do with our effort, and if he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and it has nothing to do with effort, which is what Romans 9.16 clearly teaches us, then guess what? He gets all the praise, and he gets all the glory, and we get none of it. And I believe as we hear Paul's testimony and how he persecuted the church, we should understand that God's grace saves, that Jesus saves, but we should also understand that if God is able to save Paul, he can save any sinner. And he does so by his grace alone. He can take the most proud person and the most humble person and save them both. He can take the most vile person and wash them white as snow. You may think, well, well, I have some terrible sins in my past. You don't know the, the sin that I've committed in my life. You may even be, be uh, some sort of terrible person that's committed some sort of terrible sin. You may be terribly opposed to Christianity. You may believe that it's a fairy tale. That it's concocted in our own minds. 
Guess what? Jesus still saves. By God's grace, he can reveal to us the glory of the Father. And we will never be the same. Being religious does not save us. We are saved by God's grace alone and not by anything in us. But there's a fourth item that I want us to see in this passage. And that is this. To know God's mercy, we sometimes must experience humility. To know God's mercy, we sometimes must experience humility. I want you to take a moment and picture Paul. He is at the height of power. He's on his way to Damascus. He has his men with him. Christians are fleeing in terror from Paul. He's rounding them up. And then he's blinded and he has to be led into Damascus by the hand. He can't see anything. He's forced to be completely submissive to God's plan. And God had to blind Paul in order for him to see. And Paul thought he knew the truth. Paul thought he knew the true way. But now he's blind. And he's forced to admit that he can't see the truth. And something he had never seen before. He has now seen the glory of the resurrected Lord Jesus. It doesn't always happen this way. We're not always forced into humility in order to be converted and to know God's mercy. However, at some point in our lives as believers, we are all humbled before the majesty of an almighty God. At some point in our lives, we comprehend the holiness of God and the fact that we are not holy. Often when looking into scripture, we are stricken by God's presence and who he is and what, what it reveals about him. Because in his word, we get a glimpse of his glory. And when we see it, we're humbled. You know the reason most of us feel pretty good about ourselves? We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. The reason most of us feel pretty good about ourselves is that we're using the wrong measuring rod. We measure ourselves against other people, against our neighbor. Well, I'm better than my neighbor or even some other Christian. I'm better than that Christian over there, or at least a professing Christian anyway. But oh, when we measure ourselves against God, we realize just how low we are compared to his majesty. I love this quote from, by the Puritan Thomas Brooks. He says this, here is a wonder. God is on high, and yet the higher man lifts himself up, the farther he is from God. And the lower man humbles himself, the nearer he is to God. Of all souls, God delights most to dwell with the humble. For they do most prize and best improve his precious presence. You know, as I was writing this sermon, I began to think of humility. I did what I sometimes like to do. I thought, I wonder what Charles Spurgeon says about humility. Because... If you know me, you know I like Charles Spurgeon. And so I read a part of a sermon of his called Pride and Humility. Let me share a portion of it with you this morning. He says, Charles Spurgeon says, it's not humility to 
underrate yourself. Humility is to think of yourself, if you can, as God thinks of you. It is to feel that if we have talents, God has given them to us. And let it be seen that like freight in a vessel, they tend to sink us low. The more we have, the lower we ought to lie. Humility is not to say, I have not this gift, but it is to say, I have the gift and I must use it for my master's glory. I must never seek any honor for myself, for what have I that I have not received? But beloved, humility is to feel ourselves lost, ruined, and undone. To be killed by the same hand which afterwards makes us alive. To be ground into pieces as to our own doings and willings. To know and trust in no one but Jesus. To be brought to feel to seeing nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Humility is to feel that we have no power of ourselves. But it all comes from God. Humility is to lean on our beloved Jesus Christ, to believe that he has trodden the winepress alone, to lie on his bosom and slumber sweetly there, to exalt him and think less than nothing of ourselves. It is in fact to annihilate self and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as all in all. Church, Humble submission is to guard us. And it's one of the marks of true conversion when the Lord reveals himself to Paul on that road to Damascus. What does Paul say? Who are you, Lord? And what shall I do? The first question is one of discovery. Lord, who are you? As we read and study our scripture, we should ask what it reveals to us about the Lord. We should ask that question, Lord, what does this say about you? Who are you, Lord? Who, how are you revealed in this passage of scripture? And the second question is one of obedience. We should ask, what do I need to do as a result of reading it or hearing this? You see, we have many Bible teachers running around saying that you can have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. And that's ridiculous. Because when he reveals his majesty to us. And we behold his glory. We are like Paul. We're humbled. And we say Lord. What do you want me to do? Humility. Is expressed through. Obedience. Lord. What would you have me to do? But there's a. Fifth thing I want us to see in this passage of scripture. And that's this. Baptism is an important part of our confession of faith. Baptism is an important part of our confession of faith. As we read through Paul's testimony of his conversion experience, we notice in verse 16, he relates his baptism. Ananias comes and the Lord uses him to restore Paul's sight. And then he says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, sometimes people get confused by this verse because they believe that it teaches us that baptism washes away our sin. However, if this verse teaches that baptism washes away our sin, then all the verses that teach us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are missing an important element. 
In other words, it's easier to read this verse and make sense of it according to the rest of the Bible than to try to come to a conclusion based upon this one verse that contradicts the rest of Scripture. And so it's not saying that baptism washes away your sin. Throughout the Scriptures, we often read about someone's conversion, and it says this, they believed and were baptized. Baptism is often closely associated with belief. In fact, they are closely linked as baptism often immediately follows belief. Water baptism is a picture of what God has already done in a person's heart through their faith. It is the picture that he has washed away sin. When we read here in verse 16 that, that he had to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, Paul had already called on the name of the Lord. And at that point, his sins were washed away. Baptism is the act of obedience to the Lord's command. And it's a graphic picture for us. It is a source of assurance and of the cleansing that comes the moment someone trusts Christ as Savior. This is what it would have been for Paul. I don't want us to miss the point. The point is not that baptism washes away our sins, though it is a picture of that. The point is that if God has cleansed us from our sins by faith, then we should immediately follow by being baptized. We shouldn't delay. That is why Ananias has said to Paul, basically, what are you waiting on? In the early church, there was no such thing as an unbaptized believer. It was foreign to them. It made absolutely no sense. It should be foreign to us. But unfortunately, somewhere along the lines, we have changed the guidelines of baptism. And so what happens is perhaps someone comes to faith in Christ and before they are ever baptized, we have all these baptism classes. We got we to gotta put you through a baptism class that, they, that maybe someone has to go through. We have them make sure that they are ready for baptism. Church, there's only one requirement for baptism. And that's that you're saved. That's the only requirement. So when I ask questions concerning baptism to somebody, it's to verify that they know Christ as their Savior. That's it. Some people place their faith in Christ and they wait months or years. Some never get baptized at all. They've never been baptized. And so we've seen that, that Paul loves the people, that he shares his testimony with them, and that we've seen religion does not save, but God's grace saves apart from our merit or works. And we learn that to know God's mercy, we sometimes have to experience humility. And we've seen here that baptism is an important part of your confession of faith. And let me just say this morning that if, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've never followed up in believer's baptism, then you haven't even taken the first step of obedience and you're following of Christ. And so you need to do that today. But lastly, I want us to see this. We are saved for God's purpose. We are saved for God's purpose. Have you ever gotten your agenda mixed up with God's purpose? Have you ever felt like you know better than God in your life 
Don't be a, don't don't act like you've never done that. Okay? Because I know I had done that. Like, Lord, I think I know what I'm supposed to do here. So you can just take a break. I got this covered. If you ever thought, God, if you just follow my plan, things would go a lot better. You know, we're not saved in order to set out and accomplish what we want to accomplish. But salvation is for God's purpose. In verse 10, Paul says, what shall I do? Look at the response. You will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Now look down at verse 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness from him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now that word appointed in verse 10 in the Greek is this word paso. And it's a military term. Meaning to be assigned or to be emplaced. To be assigned, conceived of as, as being put into a place or position. That's what it means when it says appointed in verse 10. But here's where it gets interesting. Because the word appointed appears again in verse 14. And it's not the same word in the Greek. It's not the same Greek word. In the Greek word, it is the word prokaryzo. And it means to choose for oneself. A point. Choose or also to choose in advance. So Paul says, what shall I do? And the response is, you will be told everything that is assigned for you to do. Then Ananias tells Paul that God has chosen in advance for Paul to know his will. It doesn't leave a lot of room for Paul to assert his own agenda into the mix when it comes to his future. You will be told everything that's appointed for you to do. And God has chosen in advance everything that he wants you to do. That seems pretty straightforward to me. God had already determined how Paul would serve him. God has already set Paul's agenda. And guess what? It didn't coincide with what Paul was doing at that moment. What God wanted Paul to do was not to run around persecuting Christians. But God had another plan. And in fact, it doesn't even coincide with what Paul wants to do. Look at verses 17 and 18. We have some new information that we didn't know concerning Paul. After his conversion, Paul returned to Jerusalem. Most likely, he wanted to be a witness to his fellow Jews. However, when he returned after his three years in Arabia, he was in the temple and it says he was praying and he saw a vision of Jesus telling him to get out of Jerusalem quickly. Why was he told to get out? Because the Jews were not going to accept his testimony about Jesus. 
What does Paul do? Well, Paul has his own agenda. Did you see it? He tells him. He tells the Lord that the Jews know how I hunted down Christian. So they would know his background and therefore he could be a good witness to the Jews. Paul's plan was to be a witness to the Jews. In fact, they would have been aware that, that he was a witness to the stoning of Stephen. But what does the Lord say to Paul? Go! For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Church, we're saved for God's purpose and not ours. Paul wanted to do one thing, but God had a different plan. God's desire is that the gospel go forth to all nations. And though every one of us is not called into full-time missionary service, neither is every one of us called to live a life that is self-centered while we see those around us perish. Nor are we called to ignore the nations perishing in darkness. If we sit around like the Jews thinking that we are God's chosen people, if we sit in our pew and we come to church every once in a while and we think oh well look at me look how great of a Christian I am and we follow the the points of religion and we grow comfortable walking through the rituals of religion while ignoring the loss that are all around us we are missing God's purpose for our life every follower of Christ needs to ask themselves this question God, what would you have me do to fulfill my purpose of glorifying you among the nations? God, what would you have me do to fulfill my purpose of glorifying you among the nations? And I don't know what that looks like for you, church. I don't know. I don't know when you ask God that question, what the response would be. For some people, he calls them to be full-time missionaries. For some people, he calls them to engage in full-time ministry. For some people, he calls them to be missionaries where they are. For some people, he calls them to give greater to missionary endeavors. For some, I don't know what he's going to call you to do, but I know this, that his purpose in your life is that he would be glorified among the nations. Like Paul, our personal testimony gives voice to our faith journey. In it, we speak of our encounter and transformation by the work and person of Jesus Christ. And our longings for holiness to match it is through our testimony that we invite people to come and see the Savior. Keeping in mind that our story is not the jewel, but the setting. It's not the picture, but the frame. We invite people to look into our lives. And see the presence of Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans that the power of God is the gospel. And his good news must be the focus of our testimony. A testimony that contains the power of God finds its focus in the person of Jesus Christ. Not our personal encounter with him. 
You see, Paul loved the lost. Do you? Do you? Paul loved the lost. That's how he started this whole message. And the simple question to you is, do you? And I, I don't mean your lost brother or your lost sister or father or mother or relative. Yeah, I want you to love them. Do you really love the lost, church? Do you love them so much that when they despise and persecute you and spew hatred at you and if they were beating you to even kill you, would you stand and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? Do you love the lost? Paul gave evidence that religion does not save, but instead God's grace saves apart from our own merit. He made it clear that sometimes we have to experience humility in order to know God's mercy. That baptism is a part of our confession that we are saved for God's purpose. This was Paul's testimony. Do you have a testimony of how Jesus saves? Do you have a testimony of how Jesus saved you? And if not, I invite you to come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you do have a testimony of how Jesus saved you, then I plead with you this morning. Share it. Share it. Because through your testimony, others may believe. Oh, that we would be like Paul. And that we'd simply love the lost. We love them. And be willing to share our testimony. Here in a moment we're going to sing a song. This morning if you reflect on your life and you would say, I don't believe I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I don't have a testimony like Paul. I don't have a time when I know that Jesus saved me. I'd be glad to talk with you. I'll be standing down front. Glad to talk with you. If you want to talk later, I'll do that too. If you just want to come and pray, you can come and pray. Maybe this morning you would say, you know what? I have a testimony, but I'm not, I'm not loving the loss. I'm not sharing my testimony. I'm not sharing with people about Jesus Christ. And it's time for me to get busy. I need to ask God, God, what would you have me do to fulfill your purpose among the nations? And if you need prayer with that, I'll, I'll be down front. I'll be glad to pray with you. If you need to respond to this message, I just want to encourage you to do so. And if not, if you want to respond to your pew, you're more than welcome to do so and, and tell me about it later. If God's spoken to you in any way, I, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's close with prayer.